Good morning, church. I hope that excites you just at least a little bit. Like, I mean, for 45 years or around that, the number of interns, and we've had apprentices in the past, and how this church has poured in to leaders, and now we're trying to put together an intentional, formal effort to do more of this in the future. We love the fact of having Demetrius join us, uh, so you'll hear more about this in the weeks to come. Last Saturday, not yesterday, uh, two Saturdays ago, I was in Abilene. I was blessed to be the commencement speaker at Abilene Christian Universities at their graduation ceremony. They have some buildings under construction. So way back in October, they said, hey, we hope to have them ready, but if not, we'll have it out on the football field. They just were not anticipating for it to be 108 degrees last Saturday. It was uh, so hot. It, it broke a record in Abilene for the hottest it's ever been on May 6th, ever. So we had two ceremonies, a 10 a.m. and a 3 p.m., and then we had to wear all that regalia on stage. And so, so I, I wrestled with what am I going to say to all these graduates two different times? What am I going to speak to them? And, and I, I was uh, tempted to go the route of that many of you have heard, like graduation ceremonies, like you can go be a, a change agent, like you can change the world. But I don't know if I believe that anymore because I've just known too many people and I look at them and I'm like, you don't have a chance at changing the world, all right? You're probably not, I'm, I'm just joking, all right? But maybe it's not the best thing to say to them. What I wanted them to hear is that no matter what happens in life, it's probably not going to go as you, as you plan. And God is with you. And what I wanted them to know is that the most mature people I've ever seen in my life are people who have allowed others to invest in them and that they don't go through life alone. And as I sat on stage, dripping sweat, probably losing 10 pounds in each ceremony, I thought, what am I going to do? Because if I don't have something in my mind, like I'm just sitting here as all these graduates are coming across stage, and I chose, let me just use this as a time to pray over people I don't even know who they are, just praying that God would help them to know God is with them every step of the way, and that they will let other people invest in them. Uh, the reason I'm here at Sycamore View is because I got a phone call when I was preaching at a church in Houston. And the phone call came from Lynn Anderson. Lynn Anderson is a man who has invested in so many people. I consider him a spiritual grandfather in my life. Lynn worked with the elders of this church over 15 years ago, did some consulting, worked with many of you for over a year, helped John French and some of you memorize the Psalms. I know he led a men's retreat here in our church. And Sycamore View had called me. You were looking for a preacher. You called me, and Casey and I were not interested in leaving Houston. We liked where we were. True, it was not even one years old. We liked raising a family there. So we said no to a conversation. About a week went by. Sycamore View called me again and asked, would I please just have a conversation? We knew Jim Hinkle was here. Other than that, we had no Sycamore View connection, but we weren't interested in leaving, so we said no again. A week went by, and I get another call, this time from Lynn Anderson. And Lynn was actually sitting on the porch at David French, our missionary in Zambia. He was sitting on the porch in Zambia of our missionary, and he was calling and he said, Josh, look, I've worked with this church in Memphis for over a year. And I understand they've called you twice and you've said no to a conversation, but I'm just asking you, they're going to call you again here in just a little while, and I'm just asking you to have a conversation with them. So out of love and respect for Lynn Anderson, the next time Sycamore View called, I had a conversation, which led to a visit a month later, an offer, and three months later, we came and made Memphis our home. Lynn Anderson passed away three days ago. Had been sick for a number of years. And to see on social media, many of the people I follow, many other ministers, how many people 
look to Lena Anderson as a mentor, as a spiritual father or a spiritual grandfather. Churches around the world, so many churches are healthier because of Lynn's influence in their life. And now I stand on this stage every Sunday and I look out at people who've invested in me and my family and the investment you have made in me and in each other and in other leaders, some who are still here, some who are all over the world doing work in the kingdom of God to think that we have a chance now to do the same thing. So join me in praying that God would use future apprentices in the life of this church. So we're in a series right now called uh, Empty Tomb. We're talking about the power of the resurrection. It's a seven-week series. And today I want to do something that's really challenging for me. It has been in my preparation and in how I'm going to deliver this. So it's going to be a little different how we engage the Word of God this morning. So here's what I'm going to do. All right, over here to my right, this section right here, you are going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. So I need you in Matthew chapter 28. So from the front, from the Pattersons, the Knights, all the way to the back, to my teenagers and David back in the back, you are in Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. This section right here, you are Mark. You're in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 16. It's the only chapter you're going to be in, so when I call out a verse, it's going to be in Mark chapter 16. This section right here, you are Luke. You are in Luke chapter 24. It's the only chapter I'm asking you to be in for the next little while. And last but not least, who are you? John's the weirdest of all four apostles. And that's not saying oh, you all are weird. I'm just saying John's a little different. But I want you in John chapter 20, not John 21, John chapter 20. Now, most people agree. Now, authorship in the Bible can be debated a little bit. Most people agree that Matthew was an apostle of Jesus. So he would have been an eyewitness of the miracles and the teachings. He would have been an eyewitness of the crucifixion. He would have been an eyewitness of when Jesus first appeared to the apostles after his resurrection. Most people believe that Mark was discipled by Peter. Now, maybe Mark interacted with Jesus, but he wasn't, a, he wasn't an apostle. But what he, what he shared with us most likely came from Peter sitting him down and sharing with him all the stories of how he had encountered Jesus. Now, most people believe Luke was discipled by Paul. Luke didn't know Jesus. Most people believe Luke was a Gentile. Luke probably didn't come to know Jesus until around halfway through Paul's missionary journeys. And that's how he came to know Jesus. And then he did all this research and wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Most people believe that John was an apostle of Jesus. And in the Gospel of John, when it says the one Jesus loved, or the beloved, that he's referring to himself. So he would have been an eyewitness of the miracles and the teachings and the crucifixion, and he would have been there when Jesus rose from the dead. So here's what I want to do first. In Matthew, I want you in 28 verse 1. Mark, you're in verse 1. Luke, you're in verse 10 of chapter 24. And John, you're in verse 1 of chapter 20. And here's my question. How many women were at the empty tomb? I don't want you shouting at me when I come to your section. I just want you lifting up a hand. How many women were there? Matthew, verse 1. How many women were at the empty tomb? Two. Mary Magdalene and then the other Mary. If you lived in the first century and you didn't know someone's name, a woman's name, say Mary. There's a 50% chance you're going to get it right. Mark, how many people were there? How many women are there? We have three. Mary, the mother of uh, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome. Luke, how many people are there? Three plus, right? It just says Mary, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and then, then the other women. It's just the other women. It's like the whole Sycamore View Women's Ministry Tuesday morning Bible study. They just, they're just all there. 
It's like the other women, I don't know if they were like in the clique or if they just went because they knew Cracker Barrel brunch was coming after that, after that morning, but they're there. It's just the other women, like all these women who were there. John, how many do we have? There's one, Mary Magdalene. So everybody agreed on Mary Magdalene. So who's right? Now, if you were to ask me where I eat lunch Friday, I would say Babalus. I would say I went to Babalus. But if you were to ask me, do you and Casey ever go out for lunch when the kids are at school? What I would tell you is, yeah, last Friday, Casey and I went to Babalus. And if you were to ask, hey, do you and Casey ever hang out with, with staff members at Sycamore View? I would tell you, yeah, last Friday, Casey and me and Anna went to Babalus. And if you were to ask, do you ever hang out with people outside of Memphis? Do they ever come and visit you? I would say, oh yeah, in fact, this last Friday, Casey and me and a friend went to Babalu's with somebody who lives in Houston, Texas. And all of them are right. So what we do know from all four is there are a lot of women who were there at the tomb when Jesus came out of it. All right, now, over here, my Matthew crowd, I need you in verse 2. You're in verse 2. Mark, you're in verse 5. Uh, Verse 4, Luke, you're in verse 5. John, you're in verse 12. And here's my question. The next question is this. All right, it's a little debated, depending on which version you're reading. Are they angels who were there at the empty tomb or young men who were at the empty tomb? And how many were there? So Matthew, for you in verse 2, you have one angel. An angel is there. Mark, how many do you have? One, and it's a young man. It's described as a young man who is dressed in a white robe. Luke, how many do we have with you? We got two. Two men dressed in dazzling clothes, which is how you would describe me after uh, church today, right? I mean, two men dressed in, I don't know if it was Old Navy or Izod or Bugle Boy or whatever it was, all right? It's just dazzling clothes. And John, how many do we have? We have two angels. So for Mark and Luke, they just describe, describe them as young men. For Matthew and John, they describe them as these were, these were angels. Were there one or were there two? What I want to do this morning is just show you some unique pieces of the resurrection, but I'm, I'm also wanting to show you how they are all unified in the story they tell, but how there are some unique details in how they tell the stories. So now I want Matthew, I want you looking at verse 2 again. Mark, verse 4. Luke verse 2, and John, I want you looking at verse 12. Verse 1, sorry John, verse 1. And I want you looking at how was the stone rolled away. So for Mark and Luke and John, it just tells you when the women showed up, the stone, it had either been removed or it was, it was already rolled away. They showed up, it was gone. Matthew, what, how does he tell it? What was it? It was an earthquake. You would think if there was an earthquake, this is a detail everyone else would have shared. That's a pretty big deal. That if there was an earthquake and the ground shook, and the result was a stone was moved. That's a pretty big deal for Matthew. I want to come back to that here in just a moment. Now, who was running on the morning that the tomb was found empty? So in Luke, I want you looking in verse 12. And John, I want you looking in verse 2. And again in verse 4. And Matthew and Mark, guess what? There's no running the day that Jesus was found uh, out of the, the tomb is empty. No running. Just walking. So, so no running for you. In Luke in verse 12, who's running? Peter's running. And then John. John, this is the running crowd over here. There's a lot of running in John. In verse 2, Mary is running. So Mary runs to tell the apostles... 
And then in verse 4, it's Peter and most likely John who run together. In verse 4, they're running together to the tomb. And then John ends up out running Peter at the very end, so he gets there first. But he stops at the door. Peter goes all the way in. So there's a lot of running, and here's the last question I want you to look at. What is the encounter with the presence of Jesus like at the empty tomb? What is the encounter with Jesus at the empty tomb? Matthew, I want you to look at verse 8 and 9. John, verse 14 through 16. Mark, and I'm going to get to the ending of Mark more here in just a moment, but in those first eight verses of Mark, there's no appearance of Jesus. It's just a tomb that is empty. And in Luke, it's not until verse 15 that you see Jesus, but it's not around the empty tomb. It's on the walk to Emmaus. There's no presence of Jesus that is there, just an empty tomb. In Matthew, in verse 8 and 9, Jesus interacts with the women. And what Jesus says is greetings. And when he says greetings, they come and they fall at his feet and they begin to worship Jesus. This is something that happens in the Gospel of Matthew. There's more worship happening in Matthew than in Mark, Luke, or John. They worship him and Jesus tells them, don't be afraid. And they had every reason to be afraid. Don't be afraid. I want you to go and you tell the apostles what you have seen. And in John in verse 14 through 16... John tells the story just a little differently than Matthew does. It's this intimate encounter between Jesus and and Mary where Jesus is behind Mary and then Mary sees a man, but she doesn't know it's Jesus. And it's when Jesus says her name, Mary, that she realizes she is in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. And there's a short encounter that they have. A few weeks ago, Casey and I uh, went to uh, see the Memphis Symphony. Jeremy Upton, one of our members, was performing. We wanted to go because Casey and I just love different pieces of art that we have never been to a symphony before. And we also wanted to go and support Jeremy. So we got there. We sit down. We see the whole orchestra. They are there, and they're all warming up. And then there's this huge chorus that's behind them, way back in the back. Dozens and dozens, maybe over 100 people who are in the chorus, way back in the back. And this was Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which many say is the greatest piece of music that's ever been written. And I didn't know until we went that like, by the time Beethoven premiered that symphony, he was completely deaf. Like he directed the symphony, and as he was di- directing it, like they gave him a standing ovation, and he didn't, didn't even know the crowd was cheering. Like he was completely deaf. This guy was a genius. So he was brilliant. And what happened with the Ninth Symphony is Beethoven broke his own rules as he decided that for this one, there were going to be choruses, there were going to be soloists, there were going to be voices that would be heard. Because up until then, it was almost like Church of Christ a cappella in reverse. I know for many of us, depending on what kind of Church of Christ you grew up in, it was, hey, we, kinda, we sing with our voices because we don't want instruments to disrupt the voices. And for, for them, it was, we have instruments and we don't want voices disrupting our instruments. But this, the Ninth Symphony, was going to include the chorus. So the, the director set it up for us. We did the national anthem, and then they did the Ukrainian national anthem, which was a really cool moment. And then the director said, there are going to be four parts of this symphony, and we want to hold them all together so there will be a short break in between each one. We're talking just a few seconds, but we're asking for you not to applaud. And guess what happened after the first one? Sweet little old white lady in front of us. She started applauding. The usher pulled out a taser. I'm just joking. They didn't do that. All right. 
she's still at 201 Poplar today. Now, all their family members, like, hit her with the program. Like, you can't do that, right? And then we get to what felt like the end of it, the end of the symphony. And it was incredible. I mean, there were moments that were soft, the moments that were fast. And then we get to the end, and the chorus still hadn't done anything. And I found myself sitting there because I haven't been to a lot of these performances thinking, is it just, are, are they just a decoy? Like, are they just back there and they decide whether they're going to use them or not? Like, they've been back there this entire time. Like, why couldn't they stay off the stage? And then when it's time for them to sing, they come on. They've been back there the entire time. And what Beethoven said was this. He decided that the choir had to wait for three movements before making their entrance. Because history of research shows that if one begins with them, it is easy to get bogged down in the mass of detail and never emerge. There was something about keeping all four parts separate yet also together that made the Ninth Symphony all that it is. So when it comes to the four gospel writers and how they tell the story of the empty tomb, let me say this. I think reading chronological Bibles can be very, very helpful. I encourage it. I think it's a good way to understand the Bible. Like to read chronologically, right? So you're seeing like where things appeared and what era and what year they did. I mean, when it comes to reading First and Second Chronicles and the Kings and First and Second Samuel, and then you're seeing how the prophets were prophesying in that time, it can be really helpful to see the Gospels or to see the book of Acts and where Paul's missionary journeys and some of his letters are being written while the book of Acts is happening can be super helpful. But what I also want to say is that there are parts of the Bible that need to be able to stand on their own because they're saying something to us in their own context. So when it comes to how the four gospel writers tell the story of the empty tomb, maybe the best thing to do isn't just to combine all the details into one, it's to let them sit on their own because they have something to say. So one of the things Matthew wants you to know is he tells the story of the resurrection in chapter 28 of Matthew. Matthew uses the word behold four different times, which is a word Matthew loves. Behold. When he talks about behold, it is like stand still in the presence of God. Open your eyes to see. In verse 2 and twice in verse 5 and in verse 7, it may not show up in your English versions, but it's behold what God is doing. In Matthew... There is an earthquake that happens on that early that morning. And in chapter 27, verse 51, when Jesus died, it says the ground shook. So Matthew, he has two earthquakes that happen within three days of each other. And maybe it was a literal earthquake that really happened. There are some historians who believe it did. Maybe this is Matthew's way of saying the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has shaken the foundation of the world forever and it will never be the same. Two different times in the first 10 verses, Matthew has, don't be afraid. There's an angel who says it in verse 5. Don't be afraid, but you need to go and tell. And then in verse 10, it's Jesus who says, don't be afraid, you need to go and tell. Most people believe Matthew was writing his gospel around the time of the destruction of the Jerusalem, where there was some persecution that was happening, and there were a lot of reasons for people to be afraid. And when Jesus is saying, don't be afraid, I think in a way what Jesus is saying is there are a lot of reasons to be afraid, but don't be paralyzed by your fear. Don't let your fear keep you from living a courageous life. So in Matthew, you have the Great Commission in verses 16 through 20. 
But that's not the first time you see commissioning happening in chapter 28. It's already happened twice. That Jesus is saying, hey, there's a lot of reasons to be afraid, but in the midst of fear, we take courage into the world. Now Mark can get a little challenging in the end of Mark. Because you've got a short version and a long version. All right, we really like the long version, but for the first four centuries of Christianity, most ancient manuscripts stopped in verse 8. And I believe as the Word of God came together that it's the whole Word of God, all of chapter 16, short ending and long ending, it is touched by the Spirit of God. Because verse 8 ends with women who are standing there and they're afraid. That's it, period, end of story. If you choose to believe that verse 8 is where the ancient manuscripts stop. And who wants a story to stop like that? We like happy endings. We want to see how it's going to happen. Yet some people believe that Mark stopped in verse 8. As a way to say, not to generate fear or terror in your life, but in the midst of your fear, this gospel is now handed on to you. And now what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with the fact that your eyes have been opened to believe that Jesus is alive? What is the church going to do? How are you going to live this out? When it comes to Luke, we don't know nothing about the story of Emmaus if it's not for Luke. Like that whole little wall Jesus has, if it's not for that, we don't know any of it. And in verse 5 through 7, when the angel appears in the Gospel of Luke, the angel doesn't appear to tell people what to do. The angel appears to describe what has happened. And then you have this phrase that appears a few times in Luke, in Luke 24, which is, they remembered. Like an angel would say something, and then they remembered. Memory is so important to Luke. And this is why I want to encourage people, I want to encourage you, to be in the Word of God regularly in your life because when those moments in life happen where you need a Word of God to, to draw from, you're not going to a Google search engine to see what the Bible has to say about a certain subject. You already have it within you, so you are drawing upon your encounters and experiences with God. So for these people in Luke 24, like an event would happen and then it's like a light went off. They remembered how they in, had engaged the word of God or they remembered what a rabbi had said or what grandparents had taught them about the story of Jesus. In Luke, there is remembering, there is walking, and there is eating throughout the entire gospel, especially chapter 24. The first meal in the entire Bible is when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. And the first meal after Jesus rose from the dead is in Luke chapter 24. They're in a home, and when Jesus breaks bread, their eyes are open to see that this really is Jesus. So in Luke, there is remembering, there is walking, and there is eating. And that is where faith is discovered. It's where faith is, where, where it grows. Now in John, who's always a little different, and if it's not for John, we don't know anything about the guy we call Doubting Thomas. John tells more than just this story. He tells multiple stories about Thomas. And when John tells a story about the empty tomb, there's something about standing in the doorway of the tomb that matters to John. Maybe because he was the one standing there as he was racing Peter. He stops and looks in, and what the Bible tells you is when he looked in and he saw that it was empty, it says he saw and believed. The word belief. John uses over 90 times in the Gospel of John. The word believe, John uses it more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke combined. John uses believe more than all of Paul's letters combined. 
Believing's a big deal for him. So John looks in and sees and believes, and then he goes away, and as he looks in, what it tells you in detail, and I think this is both comical and interesting, is that up by where Jesus' head was when he was laid, it was a folded piece of linen. So the wrapping, the, the linen that was on his head was perfectly folded, while everything else he had been wearing when they buried him, it was like just taken off and thrown down, at the, down by his feet. So maybe he was folding something, and then got disturbed and took off. And some of you are like, yeah, I would be folding something too. And something you are, some of you are like, man, I'll just like leave stuff thrown down there like Jesus did, like just in a pile. It's interesting. There's a folded piece. And then down by his feet, it's just like everything else just kind of threw it down there. And then John and Peter walk away. And then in verse 12, it says Mary stood. She stood still. When Mary looked in, Mary sees two angels. One at the head, one at the feet. The men looked in and saw linens. Mary looks in and sees angels. And I don't know what to make. I don't, I don't want to act like men are blind to see angels, but women can see angels. It's just when she looks in, what she sees are angels. And she stands still in the moment and she weeps. And maybe there is something about just standing still in a moment that can open our hearts to the movement of God. When she turned around, there's a man behind her. And the man asked, why are you weeping? And Mary's response to the man is, if you are the one who has stolen the body of Jesus, will you please let me know? And he said, Mary. And when he did, she knew it was Jesus. A few verses later, what John tells you, is that Jesus breathed on the apostles. He breathed on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Because in the Gospel of John, from the very beginning, from chapter 1, verse 1, that in the beginning, John wants you to know Jesus is bringing new creation into the world. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, what happens is God breathed life on human beings, and now what Jesus does when he comes out of the grave is he breathes life on people because Jesus doesn't want people just to live life looking like you were alive. He wants to bring people to life in every way. So I don't know if you're in a place today surrounded by the fears of life because there are a lot of reasons to be afraid. And maybe you need to hear Jesus saying, don't be afraid, live a life of courage. And maybe you're in a place where you need to experience the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus in a way of, okay, what are you going to do with the story? It's yours. It's, it's in your hands now. Like, how are you going to steward what you know? And maybe you're in a place where you need to learn to continue to eat and to walk with Jesus and to be reminded of all the things God has to teach you. And maybe like John... You need to know that the resurrection of Jesus is breathing life into you. And what Jesus wants of you is to open your eyes and to believe. So this morning, I'm just inviting you to take a step closer to Jesus. With open eyes and open hearts, just take a step. For some of you, if you have never stepped into a relationship with Jesus, we're going to have elders here to receive you. There's an on, something you can just click online. Let us know if there's anything we can do for you. Terry Miller, I know you were the shepherd up front. If you'll go ahead and come up here. And we'll have a shepherd in the back who will receive you here in just a moment. 
And this morning as we take the bread and the cup, which some of you already have the prepackaged, and we have six tables in this room set up with the bread and the cup, and we will have a couple of minutes for you to move to those tables. Pace yourself over the next couple of minutes as you go and receive the bread and the cup. And as we go to the table and as we commit and covenant together as a church today, stay still just long enough because there may be something God wants to reveal. In our fear and in our terror, may we pray in this moment for Jesus to help us overcome our unbelief. Know that after the resurrection, people were afraid too. In this moment, we remember all that Jesus has done for us. And in this moment, we do not passively receive the bread and the cup. We receive with anticipation. So let us pray. For God, may your word come true and ring true in our hearts today. And as we receive your word, may it stay with us this week, establish deep roots, bear great fruit. And now in this moment, may, may we remember well what you have done and what you want of us as we move forward through life. So for the bond we have in Jesus, we say thank you. In your name, amen.